0: Gabriel Stellion Shanks, the Artistic Director of the Drama League in New York City. Welcome. This week, we're in conversation. This is our ongoing series of discussions with some of the most influential stage directors working today. For video episodes, just visit dramaleague.org and click on Digital Series. Or for podcast episodes, simply search for The Drama League wherever you find your podcasts. And don't forget to like and subscribe. The Drama League is a not-for-profit home for stage directors and the audiences who enjoy their work on stage, in films, in television, and across the internet. During the pandemic, we're providing essential services to help directors and their families who are suffering economic and health struggles due to COVID-19. If you'd like to join us in that effort, please visit dramaleague.org and click donate or become a member. We'd love to have you as part of the Drama League family. Thank you for listening. And now, enjoy being in conversation. Today, I am really excited to be joined by David Mendezabal. David is, of course, one of the producing artistic leaders of the Obie Award-winning theater company in New York City, The Movement Theater Company. Um, He's also the Associate Artistic Director of the Saul Project and the former Artistic Associate of the Atlantic Theater Company. But he has directed all over the United States. Uh, he's had recent productions at the Magic Theater in San Francisco, Long Wharf in Connecticut, New York Stage and Film, and many, many more. Um, at the movement, he served as one of the producers for Alicia Harris's What to Send Up When It Goes Down, directed by Drama League alum Whitney White, one of the most important productions, I think, of the last few seasons in America. He's a member of the Latinx Theater Commons, an alumnus of the Labyrinth Intensive Ensemble, the Nalak Leadership Institute, Art Equity, the Lincoln Center Directors Lab, and I am very proud to say an alum of the Drama League Directors Project. Please welcome David Mendezabal. Hi, David. Hi, hi. How are you? I am so glad you're here. Thank I'm you so for doing
1: this. To be here. Thank you. How are you doing?
0: How's your pandemic going?
1: Um, I am doing. Uh, I'm grateful. I'm doing. I'm grateful for my health. I'm grateful to be here. I'm, I'm doing well. Uh, my family is healthy and. Um, you know, the, those close loved ones of mine are, are healthy and safe. And so for that, I feel um, very grateful and privileged to to be able to say that because I know not a lot of people in the world are able to say that. So things are, are fine. I'm here in New York, in Harlem, still um, sheltering in place with my partner and our tiny Chihuahua. And um, that gives me joy. And uh, we have been sort of holding things down uptown, and uh, yeah, we're, we're doing well.
0: Great, that's really good to hear. Um, you know, as rough as this time is, I'd love to start by talking about art and your work <laughs> as an artist because I think we're finding in this time, we're not able to talk about that as much as we probably need to. Um, But I do wanna talk about everything that's going on because you're a real thought leader in our field and and I'm excited to hear your thoughts on the moment we find ourselves in. But let's go back a long time ago. I've known you for over a decade now and I think one of the fun facts of your career is that you started out as a costume designer. Um, In fact, you were the assistant costume designer for the Broadway revival of Hair, Mm
1: -hmm. um,
0: directed by Diane Paulus, and the musical Peter and the Starcatcher. Yes. Um, And what I think is so fascinating about that, and I remember uh, earlier in your career, you talking about this transition, and when you were talking about it, I thought, I don't know many designers who moved into directing. There's a lot of actors who move into directing, or choreographers. Um, but not designers. And I'd, I'd love for you just to share with all of our listeners what that switch was about. How did you come to directing?
1: So I went to, uh, I came to New York um, to go to NYU and I was accepted into the Tisch School of Arts at Playwrights Horizons Theater School. And at Playwrights, it's really about being a whole theater artist. So in your first year you have to direct, design, act, stage manage, you have to do it all. You have to really sort of know all of the facets of what makes up um, the people who are, who are making theater. And, you know, I, came, I auditioned uh, for NYU as an actor, but I knew that I wanted to be a director. I didn't really know what a director did. I just knew I wanted to be a director. And, you know, I had gone to performing arts high school a magnet program and had the opportunity to direct um, a very short production uh, of a cut production of Terrence McNally's uh, Perfect Ganesh. It was like 30 minutes of this two and a half hour play. And it was really me coming out to my mother, actually, when I look back at it. Um, And I just, uh, there was such power in um, being at the helm of the story um, and being at the helm of the vision. And actually for that, I did design the costumes. My mom helped me design some of the costumes for it. And so my grandmother was a seamstress. Um, And so I kind of grew up with sewing. I liked clothes, I liked costume design. Um, I didn't really know what that was, but I I came in knowing I wanted to be a director. And um, in order to direct at the time, you had to design, you had to design each other's shows. And so um, I had a couple of design teachers who were both costume designers and they saw something in me and actually pushed me to really um, lean into that and to, to lean into the way in which I was excited by character, excited by um, the choices that characters make, specifically like what they want to wear. And um, so I sort of fell into costume designing at school. And when I graduated, Um, It was easier at, you know, 21, 22 years old to show a portfolio of costume design work than it was uh, being like, hey, I'm 21, will you give me a directing job, you know? And um, I remember one day, like, I was just about to graduate and I ran into a dear friend of mine, Jessica Patz, um, who I had assisted. Uh, I was an intern in the costume department at the public uh, while I was in school. And she was like, I'm looking for a shopper. Do you want to work uh, on the, the? it was Romeo and Juliet in the park, the Michael Greif production. And I was like, absolutely. And the costume designer was Emilio Sosa. And I remember walking in and meeting Emilio and who became one of my first real mentors. And he took me under his wing for several months and, and gave me a number of jobs. And I sort of just fell into the assistant costume design world. And, you know, my my reasoning for it, also why I sort of stuck with it for a while was, A, I loved it, I really enjoyed getting to be in different director's rooms. You know, I got to see Roger Reese and Alex Timbers, Diane Paulus, I got to see, um, you know, Michael Greif. I got to see these directors working from a different perspective than it would have been if I was assistant directing. Um, and, and got to meet the actors and got to really get to know how an actor thinks about character and the choices that they make, the sort of nuanced choices that a costume designer can make to help tell a story. And, um, it was really exciting, and, and meanwhile, you know, I had been costume designing for so long, an assistant costume designing, and I kept introducing myself as a director. And I remember one day taking a meeting um, with Maria Guyanes, and she was like, I know you, I, I I just saw your resume as a director and I didn't realize, I didn't put two and two together. And I think at that time specifically, there was a real sort of mentality in the field that you had to sort of choose a lane and stick with it. And I think that has um, shifted and we're seeing a lot more, um, what I like to call slash artists, you know, um, actor directors, uh, actor uh, playwrights, designer um, uh, writers, you know, everything. And so." I sort of decided for myself, you know, I really enjoyed uh, uh, design, but I really wanted to be a director. I really wanted to be in the room to see the whole process. And so at the time I was assisting Clint Ramos on a show and he really encouraged me to think about uh, the work that I wanted to be a part of. Who were the writers? What were the stories? Who were the directors that was I was really excited about? And so my first assistant directing job was actually assisting Joe Bonnie on um, By the Way, Meet Vera Stark, Lynn Nottage's By the Way, Meet Vera Stark, the world premiere. And it was such an incredible experience just to get to be in the room in that way. And that opened up the doors to further assistant directing jobs, going to Williamstown for their internship, the director's lab, and then applying for the Drama League. Um, and, And really being shepherded and supported by the Drama League to define my voice as a director and figure out not only my voice, but also what my process is. And being able to bring those um, experiences that I had had as a costume designer into my work as a director. So it was an interesting shift.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, first of all, the, you know, the number of us who, who directed a play early in our career so we could come out to our mothers, right. interesting <laughs> moment. Um, and, but also as you name the people who kind of shepherded you in this journey, and I, and I think is specifically with Clint Ramos and yeah. Emilia Sosa, they have sort of seeded a generation of artists well beyond design. They, yeah. uh, they, like, they, they've taken a lot of people under their wing. And I think what's interesting about your transition as a director maybe comes from some of those people who do see design as a storytelling component. Um, not uh, that really talk about character and narrative in that way. And, and when I go to your productions, I'm always struck by your attention to detail in, in, in the mise en scène, and, and, and your stage is so full of, of things to look at. Um, you know, the story is always told clearly. It's not that it's muddled, but it's rich. Um, and and as I was preparing for this, I went, you know, David is the kind of director that other directors want to see, you know, that I I want to see because we know the, the level of complexity with which you're bringing uh, work to life. So, you know, coming from design, becoming a director, I'm curious, what what matters to you as a director when you create a production? What do you, what do you see as your hallmarks, as things you really care about yeah. in this work?
1: I think because I came from design, I really appreciate what the designers bring. And as you said, you know, working with someone like Clint Ramos, who really believes, and uh, it, it's fact, designers are storytellers, um, and, and encourages designers to really think about what the story they're telling, the dramaturgy of the story they're telling, I... I believe as a director in the power of collective intelligence. I think I used to believe that I had to walk into the room and know all the answers and be able to answer all of the questions. And as I started really harnessing my voice as a director, I realized that you don't have to know all the answers. You have to be curious and you have to bring the people into the room who believe in collaboration in the same way that you do, who are willing to ask you the difficult questions and make the time to say, I don't know, I don't know, but I'm curious to go down that path. I think one of my favorite sayings as a director and anyone who works with me will know this is, um, is there a world in which, because the answer is always yes. The answer is always yes, there's a world. Is that the world that we're building? Maybe not, but it opens, up um, the possibility of um, curiosity and the possibility of questioning and exploration and play. And I think you know our processes are so limited and we have to sort of get to the answers very quickly. But I, I think there's still so much room for play and curiosity and bringing in you know um, bringing in the designers into the the, the moment the challenging moments. How do we solve this? How do we um, enhance uh, the story that the writer wants to tell visually what is the dramaturgy of every single thing that's going on this stage every single uh, piece of jewelry or accessory um, hair is so important to me like I, I just always think about what is the character's hair um, and uh, and yeah and and I think that you know it's it's both encouraging and inviting the designers to be a part of that process, encouraging and inviting the actors to be a part of that exploration and discovery, the stage manager, the producers, the, the my, my assistants, you know, it's really about I am only as good as all of the people in my room as a director and really wanting to create an open space in which I have a clear vision of where this story is going, but in moments of uncertainty, I don't have to lock myself up and try and figure it out alone. I can really look to the room and say, what are the experiences that we all bring from our own individual perspectives that might help complicate the story even more and push that moment further than I could get it in my own limited experience. So I I
0: think it's absolutely one of the biggest misconceptions about directing that people outside our business don't understand. They think a director has a strong vision and everyone is told what to do and where to stand and how to do it. Yeah. And really, it's about having a point of view, but the openness to investigate and yeah. to question and to have a conversation with the other artists and coordinate a work of art out of that exploration. Um, that it, it's such important advice. Um, thank you for, for sharing that. In that process, and this is um, a question I don't know, I, I think of you primarily as a director of new work. Yeah. Um, would that be fair?
1: Yes, I would say in my, in my experience, you know, I didn't go to grad school, so I didn't have that sort of crash course in the classics. So most of my um, training in the real world has been uh, making relationships with playwrights and getting into their new plays and bringing those works to life. So yeah, I would say a new play director for the most part.
0: So has that been by uh, choice or has that been, uh, what draws you to creating a, a new play in, yeah.
1: in Three Dimensions? I think when I went to school, I had this idea that I was like, I wanna be a new play, I wanna work with like Susan Lloyd Parks and Tony Kushner. Do you know what I mean? Like I was Thank like, I, I wanna work with the new writers. You know, And we didn't at the time have exposure to our writers. And when I got out of school, and you know, I was fortunate to be um, invited to be involved with the Movement Theater Company, and really, um, and then step into a leadership position there. Uh, one of the first things that we did was start an open call for, for writers. Um, so we could do our elevator reading series and our ladder series and finding new works. Um, a, because you know, you didn't have to pay royalties for it. You got to make relationships with new writers and um, uh, you could get involved in that creative collaborative process, which I think all of us as, um, as artists who were coming into sort of artistic leadership from an artist's perspective, first and foremost, were really excited about the generative creative process. And so through that open call submission, I met, my best friend and one of my longtime collaborators and um, just the, the playwright who I remember reading his work and being like, oh my gosh, if, if I were a writer, like you write like what's in my head. And that's Harrison David Rivers. Um, he submitted a play called, uh, We Are Misquoted Texts Made Right When You Say Us. And it was like 170 pages and it was like this Wild play, and I just fell madly in love with it. And I was like, I don't know what this is and who you are, but I need to know you. And I remember my very first time meeting him, I went up to him after seeing another piece that he had done at the former Dixon place, and I walked right up to him, and he was with his brother, and his brother was like, do you know this guy? Because I was just awkwardly standing there with this stupid smile on my face, and he looked at me, and I just stuck my hand out, and I was like, hi, I'm David Menizabal. We're gonna be best friends. And he was like, who are you? But I just just felt it, and I did. I, like, (laughs) made him be my best friend. and we've developed so many works, and I think it was through that, through that thrill of of getting to ask a writer, what's the story that you want to tell, and get inside of that process. You know, writing is not a muscle that I uh, utilize often, um, and I don't think of myself as a writer, even though I'm trying to push myself from saying that, because you know, we are all, we all are storytellers, but there was something so thrilling about getting to understand a writer's process, getting to get inside of their work and not trying to solve their play, but trying to really help them uh, uh, figure out the story they wanted to tell and how to shepherd that story so that they felt most proud of, that's exactly what I wanted to say. And I think through that experience and through developing multiple works with Harrison and then meeting Ricardo Perez Gonzalez, who's another sort of work wife, work husband of mine uh, and Paula Lazaro and these artists who I've grown to um, have multiple relationships with, it was like, yeah, this is, this is what I wanna do. And it was through the drama League too, you know, um, I remember both projects I worked at the, well, actually, no. One of the projects I I, I assisted on the Drama League was uh, Coleman Domingos' *Wild with Happy, assisting Robert O'Hara. And it was also an incredible experience to see a writer-actor being directed by a director-playwright in this new play process and seeing just all of these uh uh all of these hats being worn to tell this story and so it was really exciting and my drama league director fest show was a new play that harrison wrote um minotaur yeah and it was just like it just it was like a a high that i was like yeah this is what i want to do and i love meeting new writers i love getting to understand how they format their words on a page what their process is and and yeah, I think that's sort of just where where it led me, you know, my life. So so what have you
0: discovered about I have a you know, I, I often get asked to write books about directing, and I really don't want to. Yeah. Um, but I would write a book about this, about the great director-playwright relationships. And yeah. I think like all the way back to like Tennessee Williams and Elia Kazan, to yeah. August Wilson and Lloyd Richards, yeah. I I think Annie Baker and and Sam Gold, yeah. and I think you and Harrison, and, I, and I've been lucky enough to have developed a few shows with you and Harrison, to know you both, to have seen uh, Look Upon Our loneliness, yeah. and, and, and I'm, I'm just really curious what a relationship like that brings. Obviously you develop a shorthand, yeah. but it feels to me that the work may grow differently because of multiple projects, is
1: that true? Absolutely, I think you're right, there's a shorthand that's developed. I think so much of directing is about relationship building and trust, really trust building. And so the opportunity to get to work on multiple projects, you really get to build a level of trust and understanding. We bring so much of our personal lives and our personal experiences to the work, whether or not they are directly influenced by our realities or sort of pulled from these different parts of what we've seen or experienced. But I think, you know, in in working with a writer multiple times, you, you begin to really hone in on an aesthetic. What is the writer's aesthetic? What is the director's aesthetic? How do those complement each other? How do, how does the writer make the director better? How does the director make the writing better? You know? Um, and and yeah, there's a level of trust, you know, and and you know, it's funny, Ricardo and I will joke because at first it was sort of like the. I think maybe this might, and now it's like, yeah, that could go. And he's like, give me a day. Give me a day. He's like, you can cut it tomorrow. You know what I mean? And it's like, and I know I'm like, absolutely. I can, I can make a suggestion, but we can continue to try to make the thing work, you know? And it's just that trust. And I think a vulnerability that you allow each other to lead with. You know, it's kind of, directing is lonely and and playwriting can be lonely also. And that relationship, you don't feel alone. You really feel like a team in it. You, You can tap into your most vulnerable sensibilities and bring that truth and honesty to the work and, and bring that to the relationships and the conversations with your actors, which will allow them to open themselves up even more and dig deeper into the work. And you see the work just elevated to a new level on stage, I think.
0: Well, and that also makes me think of your work, not only as a director, but as a producer. And just before we leave Harrison behind, I just want to say hi, Harrison, and mm-hmm. um, shout out The Bandage Place, which is, and he won the Relentless Award, and mm-hmm. and. You guys have a play called And She Would Stand Like This that 2020 is crying out for. So just oh, yes. uh, heads up to every producer in the world, find that play. Yes. Um, but I wanna talk to you because in addition to being a great director, you are an artistic leader mm-hmm. um, in two really extraordinary companies supporting BIPOC artists. And um, I'd love to talk to you about The Movement Theater Company, which produced some of the work that you were just talking about. If for those of people who are not familiar with the company, if you could tell us about that and your artistic leadership structure, which I think is really forward thinking. Um, uh, yeah, let's start there. Tell us, tell us about this company.
1: Yeah, so the Movement Theater Company creates an artistic social movement by developing and producing the work of artists of color. Um, We identify as a Harlem-based organization, and we are led by a producing artistic leadership model, which means there are five of us who all share the same title, and we divide the responsibilities of both the artistic and the producing aspects of what it means to run a company um, as a collective. Um, And uh, so it's myself, Deidre Harrington, Eric Lockley, Taylor Reynolds, and Ryan Dobrin. And, um, you know, we originally started as a traditional hierarchical leadership model. You know, there was an artistic director, an executive director, a uh, a marketing director, communications. You know, we sort of, um, at the time, you know, we always say that the original sin was forming a theater company. I don't think any of us actually, really wanted to, it was just that was what you did, you sort of formed a company. But the impetus came out of a a group of artists who didn't have access into the pipeline of, of the work that was being produced, both on the major predominantly white institution stages and at the BIPOC theaters at the time. And so what we really wanted to do was to create a home where artists could, Um, come authentically and wholly as themselves, um, not have to fit inside of the societal boxes that people wanted to put us in and really explore sides of themselves that they might not get to. So if you were an actor and you're like, I wanna give a shot at writing, you got to do that. You got to experiment and um, develop new work and you know we started in this traditional hierarchy and we were sort of suffocated by it we were all unhappy we were uh we were repeating the sort of oppressive systems of white supremacy that we had internalized uh and and we just were not thriving as an organization and we actually were invited to be a part of this organization uh or this this group called theaters leading change and we had a uh, um uh a consultant, Ann Dunning, who really helped us to develop new language, you know, and realize that language is power and that we had the authority and uh, uh, to, to craft our own language for how we worked. And it was actually through an exercise that she- helped us realize that we were all producers, which was a title that none of us really owned, that we were all producers, that we were all artists, and that we were all leaders. And so, and that we were a team. And so the Producing Artistic Leadership team was formed. And it really sort of revolutionized the way in which we all sort of came to the table from a very collaborative sense. And it's really an all hands on deck situation. And, you know, yesterday, we did a playable Instagram takeover and Whitney White, Was uh, interviewed and one thing that she said that really made me happy um, was you know we don't ask our artists to do anything that we are not willing to do and so we'll we'll get in there you know and when it comes to loading in a show to figuring out producing to figuring out a budget to figuring out a grant you know we leverage our individual skills we Teach each other. We are our own mentors and our own sort of cheerleaders in the in the field. We give ourselves the opportunity to go out and grow outside of the organization and come back and bring those skills into the organization to help the organization thrive. Um, and we've been very fortunate to be around for a long time and to begin to get uh, the attention uh, and accolades that that you know help boost. The, the theater to another level. And I think through that, you know, what I'm really proud of is that we've never lost that identity. And it's, you know, it's come with a lot of growing pains. It's come with a lot of sort of internal battles that we've had to really deal with and, and reckonings that we've had to deal with. But we've made time to, to, to sort of deal with those and think how can we be of service to our artists and of service to the community that we claim to be here for. And I think as a theater company and as a theater company rooted in social justice, that is the most important thing that you are in service to a community. You are in service to the artists that are in service to that community. And you know it, it, it takes a lot of um, humble pie and, and removing of the ego to realize that you've, you've got to stay in service of, you know? And so I think that's really the, the sort of philosophy of all of us at the table. Um, and, uh, and we thrive on making those relationships and being inspired by artists who have such clear, I mean, you know, with Alicia Harris and What to Send Up When It Goes Down, she had such a clear vision. You know, I, I still remember the first meeting that Deidre and I had with her, um, in Los Angeles and she had such a clear vision for this project and she was so generous to allow us to, to partner with her, to bring that work to New York. You know, it had had a life in in California and to bring that work to New York and to be open to meeting new directors, to meeting designers, to engaging in the conversations that helped her work grow and for us to be open to the conversations and the challenges that she brought to us to help the organization grow as well. And I think that there's that reciprocity of relationship between artists, is that we as an organization are constantly evolving and learning from the artists that we bring into the fold.
0: Well, and I think it's ultimately your structure from which all of that grows, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, not to say that non-hierarchical leadership is easy or, or you no. know, like it is a deep struggle and, and I'm part of a, a um, production company that is organized similarly, mm-hmm. but the Um, I think what we're seeing in this moment is, um, and perhaps it's not being talked about enough, but the American theater's um, uh, preponderance of white supremacy and, and oppression is often interlinked with our corporatist hierarchical structures that have been fed to us from the corporate world and the nonprofit model, and I think, breaking that apart breaks a lot of other things apart.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: It allows us to be in community in a different way. And so I hope all of those young people who start companies go to the Movement Theater Company's website and take a look at what's possible um, if you really are trying to walk the walk of yeah. your mission and, and serve the community. Um, one of the things I have loved recently about the Movement is One Move, this, this project that you're doing during the pandemic. How did that come
1: about? And and what is it? Tell our, tell our listeners. So, you know, at the top of the pandemic, we all were like questioning why theater, why now? Um, None of us were particularly interested in Zoom plays. Um, And so we really put a pause in our programming. We were getting ready to do a, a piece by Colette Robert, which was developed by the Drama League also. Um, it has a very long title that right now I'm not going to remember no what we call No one can say it. it. Um, um, we shortened it to the
0: cotillion. Yes. But, but when yes. people see the word cotillion, they'll know. <laughs> yeah,
1: so, so we're partnering with New Georges for that. And so we had to put a pause on both a workshop and a production that was coming up. And so we were really like asking ourselves, what does it mean to produce in this moment? And we ended up, you know, really recognizing that joy and community are such uh, principal values of our organization. So one of the first things that we did was we hosted two Zoom parties and it was an opportunity just to gather folks online. And, you know, we were sort of nervous. Was it gonna be fun? Was it gonna be, were people gonna um, get something out of it? And I think what we really found was the people who did come, they, they really had a, uh, that sense of community, that sense of like, we are not alone we feel alone, but we're still out there. And that, you know, joy is an act of resistance and it's a reminder to, you know, find those moments of joy, especially in these times. So that was really wonderful. And then we were fortunate to receive a grant from uh, the Art Equity Artists and Activist Fund. So Deidre and I were both, members of the facilitator cohort of Art Equity in 2017. And uh, we received this grant that was unexpected and, and really wonderful and we're still grateful for it. And so we started to think, okay, you know, part of the, the grant was really thinking about who are the communities that are underserved. And so we started thinking about who are the communities that are underserved in the theater. And one of the things that we really saw was in this moment of Zoom theater and digital programming, we were seeing a lot of opportunities for playwrights, a lot of opportunities for, direct, uh, for actors, a limited amount of opportunities for directors, and zero opportunities for designers. And then we pulled out and we started to look at the field at large and we were like, There's, that's kind of The same in the field at large. There are so few real development opportunities for designers. And as a former designer and our love as a company for designers, we were like, and we have so many designer friends, we were like, what about designers? And at the same time, we were, you know, really following Chasi and Clint Ramos online and having conversations with them about the plight that's been going on for uh immigrant designers specifically with everything that's going on you know you can't work the limitations of your visas the sort of xenophobia of this government um and and really started to say you know how can we support designers and our immigrant designers and so you know we reached out to clint and to cha and we were like we have this idea does it seem interesting and so one move Design by was born and One move, which is a program that we had that was launched in 2016, 2017, right after the election was um, a program that what we wanted to do was we acknowledged that theater takes time. You know, you're like, I want to write a play about right now. And like 10 years later, it gets produced. And you're like, that happened 10 years ago. It's not current. You know what I mean? And so what we wanted to do was create a space in the digital platform that allowed artists to respond with more immediacy and uh, to the moment, to the current political climate. And so we we launched One Move in 2016, 2017, and we had um, three artists, a musician, a singer, and uh, uh, an actor, sort of performer, mover. We gathered them in a room and created a short sort of documentary type Uh, a film about their process of just being in a room for a short amount of time and creating something, responding to current events and creating something. And it was a a program that we, we, we weren't finding funding for, so it kind of went to the back burner after that one experience. And so we started to think, okay, what if we brought that back? What if we said, we want to give designers the opportunity to be the lead storyteller and to commission them, to give them money to create something in the digital world. And the only stipulation is that it has to be uploadable to YouTube. So it has to be a video of some sort, that's it. We give them the sort of uh, two to five minutes um, and uploadable to YouTube. And other than that, it is open to sort of do what they want, you know, and and so in our first round, we commissioned fifteen immigrant designers to create fifteen new works. Um, they're beautiful stories that were in response to uh, the COVID pandemic. And in the middle of their process, um, the murder of George Floyd happened, and and the the sort of eruption of of uh, a reckoning of anti-Blackness in this country that has been long overdue happened. And so some of the designers decided to pivot and make their work about their experience with that. Some of them remained sort of uh, looking and examining the COVID pandemic. Some of the works were incredibly political, some were incredibly personal, um, and it ranged all sort of things. But it really was asking designers to tap into the tools that they have as designers, expand them into Uh, a sort of digital platform. And, you know, designers typically are responding to someone else's work as the first impulse. So this was like, what happens if you get to take the driver's seat? And so for our first round, we did that. Clint and Cha helped us co-curate a cohort of 15 designers that ranged in all sorts of design mediums. And it was a real success. And so we ended up launching a second round, which just, uh, uh, came out I think a week ago, and uh, that was co-curated by Ta- Paul Taswell, Didi Ayite, and Stacey DeRossier, and that featured a cohort of 15 black designers. And those works are up now on the movement's website, which is themovementtheatercompanyorg slash one move. Um, and those two were real, you know, what we, what we have are 15 really beautiful stories told from the perspective Of designers and in the second round we opened up creative collaborators so we have an intimacy director we have a choreographer we have a hair and wig designer in that round um, to to tell the story that they wanted to tell you know and and in the second round a big question that came up was this feeling from the designers was this feeling of there are organizations out there that are doing really important work and not wanting to sort of take money as an artist. And so we really responded to that. And we believe you know, that an artist responding to the world is really important, can be really important work. But we also were like, absolutely, there are a lot of organizations. So for the second round of One Move, we actually uh, uh, granted the artists an additional budget which they were able to donate to social justice organization of their choosing. And so through that, we were able to lift up the work of 15 organizations as well that are out there in the field doing incredible work, whether they're theater companies or, or not, you know, other social justice organizations. And so uh, it was, and that, that was a moment of really responding to a request that came out of the artist's response to the project. And we were like, yeah, you're right, how do we, what are we risking? What are we sacrificing as an organization in this moment in time to really make change? And so that was a way in which we could really take what limited resources we have and, um, and try and you know make an impact.
0: It's such a beautiful project. And we're gonna put that description in the description of, of this Um, and I really just want to encourage everyone to go. It's a joyful way to spend an afternoon. Yeah. Um, Really beautiful work. Um, I want to briefly turn, because you're not busy enough, um, to your leadership role at the Saul Project, which um, has, it's stunning to me that it's only been in existence for a few years, but it has had such an enormous impact on our field. Mm. How did you become a part of the Saul Project?
1: So I met Jacob Padrone when he uh, moved to New York to take on a leadership role at uh, the public theater. And a dear friend of mine, Alex Meta, who knew him from Chicago was like, I think you need to meet this this artist and leader. Uh, And so we ended up having a conversation. And at the time he had already had the idea for the Soul Project, which was a national initiative that amplified the voices of Latinx playwrights in partnership with uh, New York theaters and national theaters all over the country on their stages. And it was, it really came out of a conversation that he had through the Latinx Theater Commons, uh, and really recognizing that Latinx playwrights wanted productions, need productions, and productions on the the biggest stages, they wanted to be in conversation with the Sarah Rules, with the Terrell McCraneys, with the Annie Bakers, you know, um, and and to have our work as part of the American theater canon. And so um, this initiative was born and a collective was born also. There is a collective of us um, who all work together to to sort of uh, uh, seed, Uh, see the, the, the voices of Latinx playwrights all over the country at different theaters. And what that mission is really about is making these partnerships, having a theater company sign on board and say, yes, we will produce the work of a playwright, but not only that, we're gonna really go inside of the organization and look at the systems of their marketing, of their community engagement, and really help them transform as an organization to really think about the ways in which they are uh, uh, really, making a home for not only Latinx playwrights but artists of color, really in general. And how are they making a safe home? And we come on as a producer, um, as well, to sort of uh, uh, bring these works to life. There's another couple of legs of it where we ask that the the partner theaters also commission the work of another Latinx playwright and take meetings with other writers. And I think one of the things that we've begun to realize is that a lot of these um, theaters just aren't reading Latinx plays. They're just not reading them and they're just not reading them. Not reading. They're, they're not reading them. They, they don't, you know, for whatever reason, they're not. And even when we give it to them, they're not reading them. <laughs> that's, that's another story, um, but, what we're realizing is that, or, or they are only reading one and they don't necessarily have a context for the, the, the larger canon of, of what Latinx writers are writing. So there's nothing, not to compare it to, but there's nothing to sort of understand what this work is doing in the larger movement. There's a huge movement of Latinx work that has been happening, you know? And so what we try to do is really bring a, uh, uh, a body of plays to a literary department to help them sort of examine these works uh, uh, and, and, and really ask the questions and figure out what they, as a company, what their aesthetic is and find writers that can really have an artistic home at those organizations. And, you know, what, what our, our hope is is that there's a ripple effect. And we've seen it happen, you know, we've been fortunate to see it happen with Luis Alfaro whose Oedipus El Rey was a sole project production at uh, the Public Theater and the following season, excuse me, they produced Mohada and then Luis became a writer in residence. Um, Hilary Bettis, whose play Alligator was at New George's and who just recently had her production at Roundabout 72 Miles To Go, unfortunately closed early, but to see these writers, many of which people knew about. These aren't new writers. Like, Luis Alfaro, people knew about. He, there's no, you know, there's a part of me that's like, we didn't need to push y'all to do it. Y'all should have been doing it already. You know what I mean? And, and same with Hillary. Like, a lot of the theaters that we brought her to, people had known her work. They had, they had been reading her plays. They just didn't know what to do with them, you know? And so I think it was that, that push and that pressure that we were really putting at for, for folks to, especially in this moment of sort of EDI and i and all these conversations and getting all this money for all this ED&I and be like, what are you actually doing to open up your doors to these writers? Um, and so it's been really exciting to be a part of that organization to, to sort of uh, uh, learn and be mentored by Jacob, who's been a real mentor of mine as a, as a leader and an advocate of mine as a director
0: um well and and i think that's in some ways your story i mean it it, you know if i can bring the Saul project and movement theater and your directing and and your advocacy you know the theme as long as i've known you is that you've been a champion of bipoc voices and you have worked and often sometimes to your own detriment to lift up other people in the community and voices that that need to be seen and if and if i can sort of turn that to 2020 and you know i'd really love to know how this current moment feels with you i you know the american theater is is i think um you know we'll see how it turns out but it is confronting its own racism and its complicity and white supremacy um it's confronting uh, an economic shutdown it's confronting a health crisis that is prohibiting at the moment, us coming back to live performance. I, you know, as someone who has done this work for so long, you know, how does this moment feel to you? What, and what's coming next?
1: Yeah, I think, um, I think first and foremost, it's, um, recognizing that people have been doing this work, you know? And I think, you know, at a lot of the PWIs, they're like, oh my God, this is brand new. And it's like, no, this is not brand new. This is a long time coming. And a lot of the organizations that you have been stealing from are, have been doing the work and have been, you know, Sarah Bellamy once said at a TCG conference that the BIPOC theaters Supplement the EDI and I initiatives of the American theater. That that's not actually the quote, but it was something like that. Have been subsidizing the EDI and I initiatives of the American theater, um, and and it's true. You know, we we've been the homes for these artists to develop and to uh, to find their voice and to to. Be built up, to be whole, and then they're sort of taken into the PWIs. And so I think first and foremost, it's recognizing, A, that the work has been happening, and how are you in this moment of time really taking a pause as a large PWI and thinking about the ways in which you are uh, going to be reallocating power to really think about, and, and uh, power not only in leadership, but power in resources. And how are you really making space to amplify and uplift uh, artists of color, uh, BIPOC artists, queer artists, trans voices? How are you making space for those artists actually fully? And and not only making space for the writer, but making space for the writer and all of the people that they want to bring along as well into your organization. You know, so I think that that's a real sort of moment of reckoning that's having to happen. Um, I think in a lot of ways this. Like I said, this has been a long time coming. Uh, As a non-Black person of color, it is something that I am also having to personally reckon with, the ways in which my own lighter skin privilege has... Allowed me access into rooms, and and what you know, what what have I been able to do, and where are the places in which I haven't used and leveraged my voice? Is something you know um, that we all should be asking, and we shouldn't be afraid of words like white supremacy and anti-blackness and racism. We should uh, uh, lean into those conversations, lean into those difficult conversations, do the work. On your own google the things that you can google and figure out the ways in which you're really actively making space and amplifying and uplifting and paying BIPOC artists to come into your organizations and do the work that they need to do you know and, and I think um there are so many uh uh, uh individual movements that are happening, collectives that are, are, are coming up, individuals that are speaking out. And I think it's about time that we really um, listen to these voices, that we, 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 and it's not just listen and immediately respond, it's listen, digest, analyze, interpret, pause, take this time to really think about um, the ways in which these systems of oppression have internalized themselves in every single programming decision, fundraising thing, the ways in which, like, who are you, who and why are you inviting people to your galas? Who is that child that you're asking to go up there and talk about your amazing education program? Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's everywhere. And it is, uh, it is a virus that's inside of our institutions and we need to take this moment to really listen to the people who are bringing it forth to our attention and, and think about how we are actually going to do the work. Because all of these organizations who put out these wonderfully written statements, most of whom were probably written by your BIPOC, your, the few BIPOC staff members that hadn't been furloughed, I think it's important for you to recognize that those statements didn't mean anything and you haven't been doing the work. So don't say that you have, say, you're right. We have not been doing the work and now it's time to do the work, so.
0: I mean, I I think there's also a measure of, um, I feel great joy at the opportunity. I, and I really hope that we, get, you know, I think as a, as a white cisgendered artistic leader, um, I am lucky in that I don't, a lot of my colleagues feel shocked by this moment and, and are, are in sort of a place of stunned um, and, and immediate learning. And I am incredibly lucky to have known people like you and the artists that the Drama League serves and, and the artists on our staff, um, where a lot of these ideas are not new to me. Um, and we have been able to put some of these things in place. So it's been exciting to investigate my own role in this, the role yeah. of my institution and how we can create a better world. And, I, and it is, um, it feels joyous that yeah. we may come out of this moment better than we left it a few months ago, um, with a, a more equitable field, things I, I have hated about the American theater my entire life. this feels like the first moment, and maybe I'm being an optimist, but the first moment where we can really sort of craft some transformation.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. You know. Yeah. Oh, I was going to say, I keep thinking about... I always think about Carolina or change. Um, but I keep <laughs> thinking about Caroline or change. You know, change come fast and change come slow, but change come. And it's not scary. You know, I think embracing that change, change is not easy. It's hard. It's going to take hard work. It's going to mean you have to sacrifice things. You have to lose something to gain something better. You know? And I, I think those way. are the questions that we really need to be asking now. Yeah.
0: And that's healthy. That's, that's yeah. what every artist wrestles with in their own work. And if we can do that as a field, um, the possibilities are pretty endless. Absolutely. Um, I know that we're running out of time and I would love to ask you some, some uh, to, not to say that those issues aren't super important, but I would love to come to some questions that I'm just curious about and that I think will be a little fun. Um, you have, you, in this conversation, you've talked about all the amazing people that you've worked with. Do you have some dream collaborators that you haven't worked with yet, that, that you would love to work with?
1: Oh my gosh, that's a good question. Um, that's a good question. Uh, I do, and now I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> Um, I'm really, there's a, there's a playwright, um, uh, Omar Velez Melendez, who is a Puerto Rican playwright, uh, just out of Hunter College, who I have had the opportunity to work with in development opportunities. Um, but I'm really excited about, uh, an opportunity that might be coming up to, to collaborate with him. Um, I think he is just a really exciting voice that I'm really excited to work with. Um, I'm really excited. I have a project that I'm working with Issa Davis that really is about, um, transformative justice. And so that's something that is just thrilling to me. Um, I've really been following the work of uh, Lady Dane and Aditi Figueroa, and she, uh, she is someone who, as an actor, as a writer, I've just been so uh, in, inspired by and would love to, to meet her and to get the opportunity to work with her. Um, yeah, there, I mean, there are so many artists that are, are out there that I think are just, so dreamy <laughs> and I and think I have to tell you I'm,
0: I'm, I'm sitting here like for the people who are listening on a podcast they won't see it but when you talk about Harrison or yeah. or these writers that your eyes get sought you get a little like dreamy and soft. I love
1: them yeah <laughs> um I and I'm really you know I'm really excited about artists that are um not in the theater who I think are so theatrical. You know, I think you mentioned and she would stand like this, and one of the greatest experiences I had was developing and she would stand like this with the Drama League um, through an artist residency and getting to work with uh, Kia Labeja, Mm -hmm. the choreographer, Byrell the Great, who's a DJ, um, Fatima Jamal, Kiki Williams, who is my muse, um, who is a brilliant visual artist who uh, I met dancing, on a bar at Poppy Juice one night and and went up to them and was like, Are you an actor? And she was like, I can be. And I was like, <laughs> the world changed when I when I met met her. And I was like, these are there are people out in the world that we who maybe haven't had formal theatrical training, but who have so many gifts to bring to the world of theater. And that project specifically was such a incredible way of bringing folks in who were incredible artists, incredible leaders in their own communities, and saying, what, what about theater? What about this, this world that maybe has never been open to you? What would it be like to come into this world and to get the opportunity to all learn from each other and create something for community, for an audience? And so I get really excited about um, those folks those folks who who, who aren 't in the theater and yet who I feel like have gifts that the theater would be so lucky to have there 's a DJ um, that I am like dreaming about working with as a sound designer and i 'm um, like that yeah it 's just how does that you know how do, how do those artists come into the fold you know when you bring in um, Uh, you know, musicians, uh, independent musicians, what would it be like if you asked them to create a musical or create something with music and they don't have the sort of traditional structure of the American musical at mind, but they just want to create something sort of free and open, you know? So I think those those are the collaborations that I really like dream of and long for.
0: I love that, I love that. Now, I, we talked earlier about you being a new play director, but I wonder if you have any existing plays or musicals on your bucket list. Like, Before You Die, I'd really like to direct.
1: Yes, I do. Um, I You know, I, I was that 15-year-old musical theater queen, so, like, I love musicals. Like, I love musicals so much, and, like, I would love to direct musicals. Um. And, and have that opportunity. Um, so, you know, I think a musical that I've been really excited about and drawn to is Into the Woods. I just think it's such a beautiful, fun musical and and seeing the the Sondheim tribute, like just reminded me of what an incredible uh, piece that is and and what it would mean like for a BIPOC director to get to bring that to life. Um, I, uh, a play that I have, it, and it's, it's a hard one, it is an ugly play, but it's a play that I have thought about for a long time "As Short Eyes by Miguel Pinheiro. Yeah. It is a hard, ugly play, and I don't know, I don't know that we, I don't know that we need it, you know, um, but there's something about it that just shows, uh, yeah, there's something about that play that I just, um, I think about that play a lot. Um,
0: It's it's really interesting that you bring up Short Eyes because Miguel Pinero's that was the first play by a Latinx playwright on Broadway and the first play directed by a Latinx director. So it it needs more space in our history. I think it 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 deserves attention. So do that play.
1: Yeah. So those are those are two plays that uh, a play and a musical that immediately come to mind. I have a list. I have a list. It's called not not to be uh, uh to be a little humble it's a a, a, li- a sticky note that's like uh brilliant ideas <laughs> and um it's yeah it's a list of all these works that i just would love the opportunity to to work on you know
0: so my final question to you and one that i'm asking all the directors who participate in the series is i would love for you to think back to your younger directing self the the that that young kid who is sewing with his mother and his and his grandmother um but dreams of being a director. Um if there's one piece of advice that you ha- would like to share with that younger director, thing something you wish you'd known then that you know now, what would that be?
1: Um uh, I think um Love yourself and um, there is power in your voice and don't be shy to use it Um, and own all the things that make you, you.
0: Oh, I love that. I love that. That's a great way. That's a great way to end it. Uh, Well, David, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it uh we will put links to many of the things david has talked about in the uh descriptions here so please follow up visit the movement theater company visit the SAL project um and david i think you have a personal website as well correct i do yes
1: davidmendazabal.com
0: great so also keep up with david um again at dramaleague.org you can see all of our episodes we really hope that you are Surviving and thriving in this time. Um, David, thanks so much. We'll see you again soon. Thank you. Bye.